Traverse the realms of the magical, the mystical, and the path to higher healing and awakening to one's own inner gnosis through ritual practice. I'm Juniper, and today Priscilla and I are going to be doing our episode in a little bit of a different format. You see, we had we had a little bit of trouble um, recording this episode because first we decided that we were going to record in this beautiful graveyard, which we met at during a storm because the storm rolled in right as we were getting there and there was no other option but to record under the awning of a mausoleum so we sat there and we started recording our episode and then got rolled up on by a bunch of teenage boys who i don't know they seemed maybe they were stoned or whatever i remember high school doing 
something similar, <laughs> but it was quite an interesting experience and a beautiful experience as well because Priscilla and I got real deep and got to really explore themes of death and withering through that, just not able to record it. So that was one difficulty. The other difficulty was that Priscilla and I, though we love being around each other, we do live an hour apart, and there is some controversy going on right now and a lot of confusion happening with the new COVID spike. So we decided to record this episode at a distance, and our technology just was not working out for us very well. So this episode is going to be a bit of an experiment in the format. We are pretty much splicing together our our conversation through different segments. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy our laboratory. First, I want to explain to you all the song that you heard as the episode began. That was a choir of some amazing witches and my dear friends who all came together for me this year to help put on our Lunasa public ritual for our community. And it was such a beautiful experience, but I came across this song as actually a spell. And it was in the book 365, A Daily Guide to the Magic and Inspiration of the Goddess by Patricia Telesco. So the spell actually goes flower from grain. The spell begins, let the power rise within. Apples from trees now impart. Talcha bring blank to my heart. And it's supposed to be said while making dough. So as you're stirring a mixture in a mixing bowl, you stir clockwise as you say this spell. So I thought it was beautiful. And as I was putting together the ritual, decided to turn it into a song and use it as a part of our ritual. So welcome to the harvest season, dear listeners. We have a juicy one for you today. Hello, Priscilla. Hello, Juniper. I know you had some really great things to talk about, about the Wheel of the Year. So I'd love to hear what you have to say. Sure. I guess I wanted to get a little bit more um, focused on the harvest aspect, since that's what we're talking about today. But we did give some overview of the Wheel of the Year and the concept in our last podcast. I think that was um, our second episode, The Elements of Ritual. And I think it's helpful for people to visualize, say, a wagon wheel in front of you with eight spokes. And the spoke that's running up and down in front of you um, from top to bottom is, uh, is the, spoke that, the spokes that run between the solstices. And the spoke that's going side to side, one side to the other, is the spoke that connects the equinoxes. And then there are two, there's a, a big X in the middle of that wheel. There are spokes that go out that um, quarter, that crossed circle, and those are the cross-quarter days. So again, just to go over it, um, we tend to visualize the winter solstice at the top 
in part because we associate that with the direction of north. And from there, uh, the first cross-quarter day that we come to and the first fire festival of the year is in bulk. And the one after that is the spring equinox, followed by Beltane, followed by the summer solstice, followed by um, Lunasa, which is where we are now, August 1st followed by the autumnal equinox on September 21st. And after that is the cross-quarter day of Samhain, and then returning again to winter solstice. So December 21st at the top, um, and then February 1st immediately to the right, and then March 21st, and then May 1st, and then June 21st, and then August 1st, which is what has just passed um, that we're talking about in this episode. And it goes around like that. So, yeah. So I just wanted to create that visual. Um, and in honor of, since we're going to be talking a lot about Lou, whose name is spelled L-U-G-H, we're going to be talking a lot about him during this episode. And so I thought it was really appropriate to read the description of the Wheel of the Year from Starhawk from The Spiral Dance. And I believe this book was written in 1979. Um, and this is her chapter on the god. And so this is quoting her. At the winter solstice, he is born as the embodiment of innocence and joy, of a childlike delight in all things. He is the triumph of the returning light. At Bridget or Candlemas, February 2nd, his growth is celebrated as the days grow visibly longer. At the spring equinox, he is the green, flourishing youth who dances with the goddess in her maiden aspect. On Beltane, May 1st, their marriage is celebrated with maypoles and bonfires, and on the summer solstice, it is consummated in a union so complete it becomes a death. He is named summer-crowned king instead of winterborn, and the crown is of roses, the bloom of culmination coupled with the stab of the thorn. He is mourned at Lunasad, August 1st, and at the fall equinox, he sleeps in the womb of the goddess, sailing over the sunless sea that is her womb. At Samhain, Halloween, October 31st, he arrives at the land of youth, the shining land in which the souls of the dead grow young again, and as they wait to be reborn. He opens the gates that they may return and visit their loved ones, and rules in the dream world as he too grows young, until at the winter solstice he is again reborn. And I decided to read this passage because of particularly the statement that's made about the consummation at summer solstice in a union so complete it becomes a death because that is the moment at which the nights begin to grow longer and the days shorter. And so even in that moment of culmination and the height of fertility and abundance and revelry and celebration, immediately at that moment it begins to wane. And now we are in the first sort of mark, the first step, where we have begun to see that the land is actually withering a bit. Um, my squash garden is pretty much done. I've had two months of awesome squash, and now the vines are curled and gnarled, and I'm getting ready to pull them out of the ground. And it's the time of the harvest season when things have given all the fruit that they have to give. And so later we'll talk about the concept of how these this annual cycle and how these changes within the cycle can apply to our own psychological, 
spiritual and, and very real um, cycles, and how the concept of the male deity who perishes at this time of year can be relevant to us in our spell work. So you mentioned that, you know, the God goes through these cycles, right? And, you know, in this sense, the God is actually, he's the thought, and, you know, the goddess is the earth, right? And she is the, she receives his warmth as he goes through his cycles. And when he disappears in the wintertime, when he's far away, it's actually, he's gone within her, you know, he's within her womb. And I think that that's really Mm. an interesting concept to think about how he is both her child and her lover. Uh Which is kind of interesting because if you think about it, you know, the, Yes, the earth is likened to the goddess and the mother. She is the mother. She's Gaia. She's, you know, there's so many names for her. Um, and the god being the sun. Um, but the earth being constant. He is both the fertilizer and that which was fertilized, the product of the fertilization. Mm. Because he's the one that goes through the cycle. And it's not unlike the lore that surrounds kingship or used to, where if you, if you, um, you know, referring to, I guess, the Arthurian legends, where the idea of kingship, the idea of rulership isn't so much rulership as much as it is, um, that the king and the land are one. That's, that's something that you hear a lot when folks are talking about, um, the Arthurian legends. And the idea is that, the well-being, the wellness, and the health of the land and the health and the well-being of the king are united because this individual who represents the well-being of the people or the rulership of the well-being of the people has bound his fate to the well-being of the land. And through his thriving, through his successes, the land also thrives and therefore the people thrive. And sometimes... When the land is not thriving, it is necessary for the king to sacrifice himself, to die and be reborn. And that's related to this idea of the dying and rising God, um, which appears to be, from my research uh, over the last couple of weeks, it appears to be kind of specific to um, Near Eastern religious perspectives because, of course, it's very reminiscent of the story of Christ. Um, this concept of a martyr god who carries with them the sin of the people on their behalf. So there's a lot of correlations, I think, between Arthur and Jesus. Um, But as far as the meaning of the cycle goes in that relationship to us, I think in your story of Lou that you tell, your story of the season, um, you talk about the relationship that we have with abundance or lack. And that, of course, is very tied to the relationship of the king to the land or the, the lord to the lady and the people. And so at times when we have much to give, we offer in gratitude and we, we offer that to the, the cycle. We offer that to the land. And when we have great need, um, we will ask 
for something in return. And in this time of year, as the God is getting ready to go into the underworld, it's an incredible time for us to make offering and sacrifice, uh, which an offering or a sacrifice can mean a lot of different things depending on the intention behind it. It can be a gift, uh, an expression of gratitude. It can be a connection that is uh, building. So what is offered from my realm, my individual self, my family, my household, to you, to the other side, to the general well-being, that is also simply building a relationship. Or it can be offered as an exchange. So I am giving this, I would like to receive something back. Or it can be the repayment of a debt. So here the God is getting ready to pass into the underworld, and I have this excess of sin, this excess of energy that needs to be attached to the process and carried back to the other side for recycling. So I make my offering. I make my sacrifice. I give of myself deeply. And in that, of course, expressing gratitude, but also letting go of what does not serve any longer and is ready to pass into the underworld. And there are a lot of myths that connect to this um, that folks may have heard of. Some of the um, the more well-known ones, in part well-known because of James Frazier's Golden Bough, are Osiris, Tammuz, Adonis, Attis, and Dionysus, and of course, Jesus. So that's my that's my perspective on the the way that this part of the year is going. These times are liminal times between the veils, so to speak, which kind of brings me to the concept about you know Lunasa being one of the four fire festivals on the wheel, and what the fire represents in terms of transformation in terms of moving beyond veils. Yeah, we I think we talked about this um, when we were preparing for today, and I think we ended up with some questions, actually, but one of the things that I pointed out was in your way of setting sacred space, which is a little bit different than mine. Um, you know, and I've, and I've really enjoyed it, and, I've, and I have incorporated what you have taught into the way that I work also. But in your way of setting sacred space, especially in group ceremony, there's always a fire in the center. And that fire, to me, really represents the gate to the other side, so to speak. And this is where words are kind of pale in their ability to describe the energetics of the manifest and the unmanifest. But for an example, I guess I will mention Hestia, who in Greek, ancient Greek practice was the fire, but also a goddess. And she was, as the fire, um, a gateway so that when people were making their sacrifices through burning, they were offering to her as the facilitator of that because the fire, let's say, disassembled the physical bread or, or meat or whatever the offering was and made it into an etheric resemblance of itself. And that was her gate that she held. And so in many of the um, 
like in the Orphic Hymn to Hestia, there is a statement about always offering to her first and last because she creates that space through which we can access the other gods. And I think that the fire very much does that. It changes. Um, in a, in a, you know, and I have tried to read and understand the chemistry and the molecular reality of fire. And I, I, it's beyond me, really. And it, it almost feels when it's described as a rending of reality. And it very much serves that purpose in sacred space. And so these four fires, or these four fire festivals that happen at Imbolc, Beltane, Lunasad, and Samhain, they each use fire in a different way because it's a different part of the cycle. But in each case, it is a, a crossing. Um, it is an opening uh, through what you referred to as the veil from from our understanding to a more eternal understanding. In on Imbolc, it's in particular, it's about the light. I think on this holiday, it is about the sacrifice. Right. So it's kind of like the birth and death portal in general yeah. to above and below. And the way that we've been practicing, just so our listeners know, the fire, the fire is the portal to above and below in the central pillar. It is the center representation, and it allows energy to flow through it, and either from above or below or to above or to below in a toroidal mm-hmm. sense like a core channel, like the shashuna in the body, when talking about energy healing, the central channel of the body. So the fire, it's that etheric substance that helps things to transform, helps the energy Mm -hmm. to transform and to move into other Mm -hmm. realms. And I think it's important, too, to set the stage again visually. So in that space that we create for group ritual, um, and even individual, it doesn't really matter the number of people, but the way that we set it up, there is an, there's an anchor stone in the four main directions, um, and the fire is in the center. So when Juniper refers to the central pillar, we are also invoking in that way the, the cosmic above us and the earth below us. Um, and the four directions come in and are bound to that central fire. So in terms of the really the purpose of this podcast, talking about the way that we can transform our experience through our spiritual energy, utilizing ritual, setting up the physical space in that way, that fire is creating the the catalyst for the for whatever magical working that we're doing. And again, if you visualize the wheel of the year, that fire is where that central spoke would be. It's the axis of everything that is turning around it. So the axis of the wheel, the center of the cycle, the still point. Right. And you know, on the wheel of the year there are four fire festivals, as Priscilla mentioned. And those are Imbolc, Beltane, Lunasa, and Samhain. And these are the cross-quarter days that she was mentioning. So being fire festivals, 
think of it in the way that we just described as the portals, as the portals to above and below. So think about the God traveling through to the land of the living and the land of the dead. And these specific times of year mark where he is on that journey. I wanted to read another couple of passages from Starhawk, if this is a good time for that, just about the concept of the dying God. Um, So this is, again, from her chapter on the God. um, And just two quotes that I think shed some light on what we're talking about and about the role of Lou, or however he's represented in this cycle. The God is also the dying God. As such, he represents the giving over that sustains life, death in the service of the life force. Life is characterized by many losses, and unless the pain of each one is fully felt and worked through, it remains buried in the psyche, where, like a festering sore that never fully heals, it exudes emotional poison. The dying God embodies the concept of loss. In rituals, as we enact his death over and over again, we release the emotions surrounding our own losses, lance the wounds, and win through to the healing promised by his rebirth. This psychological purging was the true purpose of dramatic tragedy, which originated in Greece out of the rites of the dying god Dionysus. So, you know, anyone who has come up in a Judeo-Christian society can recognize this idea of the martyr god. I mean, that's what, you know, we have been taught. But I think that looking at it from this perspective, we can see perhaps a much more inclusive and a much more natural um, way that that concept can work for us. So when we prepare some aspect of ourselves for sacrifice, some aspect of ourselves to act as the dying God and attach it to that part of the wheel where we are in a place of um, assessment, atonement, um, settling of accounts and understanding. Uh, but that is a very important part of our growth. And it essentially, say it very simply, um, pruning equals life. And uh, here is another quote. So, as the god of the waning year, he sails the last sea for the dreamland, the other world, the internal space in which creativity is generated. The mythic shining isle is our own internal source of inspiration. He is the self, voyaging the dark waters of the unconscious mind. The gates he guards are the threshold that divides the unconscious from the conscious, the gates of night and day, through which we pass to go beyond the illusion of duality, the gates of form through which we pass in and out of life. He is ever dying. He is also ever reborn, ever living, in the moment of his transformation. He becomes immortal, as love is immortal, although its objects may fade. He glows with the radiance that sparks life. So you can see it's very much allegorical for those things that we um, become incredibly attached to. I mean, the king is the central figure in his society and yet is also the one who is laid down for sacrifice when that time has come. So I wanted to give you guys a little bit of the traditions of the beginning of the harvest season and some of the history around it because I find it to be fascinating. 
And I never really gave this holiday of Lunasta or Lamas enough credit. And I don't think others do either. It's actually filled with so much magic and story. And it's now become one of my favorite holidays of the wheel. So let's start in Anglo-Saxon England with Lamas. Lamas comes from the words loaf mass. And on August 1st, the first harvest of the year was due to the landlords. So the tenants would harvest the grain and they would basically pay their landlords and grain to be there. So giving a big portion of their grain to their landlords, they did keep some for themselves. And they would make the first loaf of bread from the grain and they would bring it to the church. This is the loaf mass, right? And when they brought it to the church, they would have it blessed. Well, what would they do with the bread then? The blessed bread. They would bring it back home and they would divide the bread into four pieces. And they would place the four pieces of the bread in the four corners of their barn, which protected their grain. So in a way, they were doing magic. So I find this really interesting because as I've mentioned before in our episodes, I have a practice of gritting. And it's not just to create the ritual container, but gritting is also for protection of your home or your land or any space. So when I grid, One of the things I do is I place stones in the four corners of the home. I do use a generator in the center of the home where I connect all of the lines to energetically to create the force field, so to speak. So I find that placing the four pieces of bread in the four corners of the barn is their way of creating that force field, the same thing that I'm doing now. So the next tradition I want to speak about on Lamas is the creation of corn dollies. So what are corn dollies? Well, looking at the linguistics, let's go ahead and look at the word corn. In America, we use the word corn to describe a specific plant Corn on the cob, you know, it grows tall and has yellow kernels and it has a silky outer sheath. And I just want to mention that in Europe, corn means any grain. So they don't really have corn over there or didn't have corn over there at this time because that was a, something that came later through the Americas. So when I say the word corn, think of the word grain. They would make dollies out of grain. Now let's look at the word dollies. So the word dolly comes from the word idol. And where does the word idol come from? But the Greek word idolian, which is the word for apparition or spirit. So what's a corn dolly? but it's the spirit of the grain. So basically, the corn dollies were made on llamas when the fields had been harvested. 
And what they would do is create this place, this home, with the corn dolly for the spirit of the grain to live through. So the corn dolly would house the spirit of the grain throughout the winter months. And then when winter ended, they would give the corn dolly back to the earth around Imbolc. They would bury it in the earth to imbue the earth again with the spirit of the grain. If you think about it, that when they believed that the grain was no more, its spirit was homeless. It was like a, a ghost wandering around and it needed a place to be. Otherwise, they were afraid it would go away. And for a good harvest the next year, they wanted to be sure that it would stay and be comfortable. So they would place these corn dollies in the center of their homes and they would make it comfortable and honor it. And it was a way of honoring the cycles of the earth. As we spoke about, about the wheel of the year, winter is the time of death. And everything's barren and everything is gone. So this kind of gives the light and the dark, right? The last harvest being imbued by the sun, the sun being at its strongest around August 1st, it's keeping that spirit alive. The corn dolly houses the spirit of the grain and the spirit of the sun in that way because the spirit of the sun is alive through the grain and it's also keeping the people alive throughout the winter as the grain is holding the power of the sun. In this way, the God or the sun doesn't ever really die. It just moves. It's somewhere else. So that's, that's what I found on Lamas. And now I'd like to go more into the traditions of Lunasta. Lunasta is a holiday that was celebrated in Ireland, and it's more druidic in nature, and I love it. I love Irish culture. I love their rich history. I love druidic ways of practicing, but I never researched as far as I did this time of the history of Lunasta. So, I found this folklorist named Maria McNeil, and she compiled some of these traditions based off of medieval writings and different segments of, of different books. So here's what she found. One tradition was the solemn cutting of the first grain. And they would offer this solemnly cut grain to the gods, Lu and Talcha. They would go to a high up place and bury it in the earth. Another tradition on the holiday of Lunasa was the sacrifice of a bull. And what they would do is they would do this ceremony with the hide. And she doesn't really give very detailed descriptions here. But I can 
imagine the Celts and the Druids with this tradition of sacrifice. And as we will get into in another episode, blood is a form of commerce. So they sacrificed a bull. They did a ceremony with the hide. They ate the meat of the bull. And then they would replace it with a young bull to be reared for the next year. Another tradition was the visiting of holy wells. And this is something that is also done on Imbolc and Beltane. And the people would go to these wells and they would offer either strips of cloth, which are known as cluties, or they would offer coins to these wells. And they would walk clockwise around the wells three times and they would give prayers for health and well-being. Again, we have that clockwise motion. Remember, clockwise motion is for spinning energy, for bringing it in. So also on Lunasa, it was a time for business and contracts were drawn up and matchmaking was done. And it was also a time for what is known as funeral games. So funeral games are the Irish version of the Olympics. And the reason why it's a funeral games is because on Lunasta, it's actually about the beginning of the death, which we'll get into shortly here. The last tradition I want to speak about is the tradition of a ritual dance or play or storytelling. Performance was a part of their magical enactment. And I love it so much because I find that through story, we can truly get the pieces that we need to relate personally to the energy being woven. So I'm going to tell you a story here, but before I do, I'm gonna go ahead and introduce you to our main players or characters or deities of the story. First, we have Lu. And who is Lu? Lu is the sun god. He is the god of light. He is the light bringer. He is the god of craftsmanship, of victory, and war. And it's believed that Lu is the imbuing of the crops at this time of year. Why do we celebrate Lunasa? But Lu, as the sun, as we just spoke about, imbues his power into the crops so the people can live throughout the winter. And it's not just about Lu, but really about his foster mother, whose name was Talcha. And Talcha was the daughter of the fields. She was the spirit of the fields. Again, think about what I talked about with Lamas, the spirit of the grain. That was Talcha. So our two main players are Lu and Talcha the sun, and the earth. Something that I think is worth mentioning, even though it is not the story that we are telling today, 
There's another belief that Lunasa is the time when Lu renews his marriage vows and consummates his marriage. And he brings gifts of crops to his wife. So again, thinking about the imbuing of the power into the earth. To me, it's almost an impregnation. So was Lu the foster child of Talcha or the lover of Talcha? I think that there are many different tales to tell, but for now, we're going to tell the story that is most commonly told. Ladies and gentlemen, gather round, get comfortable. It is now story time with Juniper. So our story begins with Talcha. Talcha was the daughter of a Spanish king, and some say the daughter of the fields. She was married to an Irish king of the Thurbold people. And as she and her husband ruled during this time, the Tua de Danan came to conquer the island. A little bit of a backstory real quick. The Thurbold people came to Ireland and took it from the Fimorians. And in Irish mythology, the Book of Invasions is quite complicated. There's several different people. The Fomorians are said to be a race created from the mating of fallen angels with man, and they're likened to, in a way, monsters. So anyway, the Furbolg people had rule of the island, and then the Tuatetanan people came and conquered the island, and Talcha's husband fell in battle. But Talcha was actually allowed to keep her holdings and rule over the area that they controlled. So with this, a condition was placed on her that she would foster a child, and this child's name was Lou. Lou was the son of both the blood of the Tua de Danan as well as the Fomorians. His mother was Itain, a Fomorian princess and daughter to Balor of the Evil Eye. His father was Cain of the Tua de Danan. So there was a prophecy given to Balor, the king of the Fomorians, that his grandchild would kill him. So when Itain gave birth to this child, Balor ordered that the child be thrown to the waves. So in comes the Druidus Bairog. And Bairog was the same Druidus who cast the spell to bring the parents of Lu together, Itain and Cain. And Bairog cast another spell, rescuing the child from the waves and bringing him into the arms of his father, Cain, who, knowing the child was in danger, brought Lu to Talcha to be raised. Talcha loved Lu and treated him as her own child. She 
trained him to be a master in all arts and in all sorts. And he grew up a very happy little boy. So when he became a man, Lou, as most heroes do, decides to go on a journey to fulfill his potential. So he goes to the kingdom of Tara, where King Nuadu is now the ruler. And a little bit of a backup story, King Nuadu at one point was dethroned because he lost a body part in battle. And the Irish used to believe that you have to be completely whole in body to be king. And another king named Bress had taken the throne and he was so terrible that a druid created a new, I believe it was a hand for Nuadu so that Nuadu can take the throne back. Anyway, so Nuadu was on the throne again at this point, and Loop approaches the kingdom, and he's met by the doorkeeper, whose name is Kamal. And Kamal is charged with keeping the rule of Tara that nobody shall enter the kingdom unless they have a useful skill for the kingdom. So there's this whole famous scene where Lou and Kamal are interacting, and Kamal says, who are you? And what do you have to offer our kingdom? And Lou says, well, you know, I'm Lou, and I'm a builder. And Kamal says, well, we already have a builder. So Lou says, okay, well, I'm also a warrior. And Kamal says, we have plenty of warriors. And it goes on where Lou's like, well, I'm a physician. I'm a magician. I'm a sorcerer. I am a craftsman and a smith and a charioteer and so on and so forth. And again, Kamal answering the same way, well, we already have this. And Lou stops for a second and he, he thinks to himself and then he realizes and he goes, hey, but do you have someone that can do all of this at once? And Kamal was like, oh man, you got us. All right, welcome to the kingdom. So Lou enters the kingdom of Tara and you know, to fast forward a little bit, he becomes a beloved of the king, Nuadu, and he starts to work his way up the ranks. So going back to the little side story I mentioned about Bress, who was a temporary king and not the best, <laughs> he decides that he wants to take the throne again, and he rouses the Fomorians to be behind him and promises to give Fomorians favor of parts of the island. So of course they love it. And King Nuadu starts to prepare for this battle and he puts Lu in charge of organizing the troops and the battle strategy. So Lu around Samhain does just this and he organizes the troops. And there's another famous scene that I just love where all of the army is gathered and the druids gather with them and the sorcerers as well as the Morrigan herself, the goddess of prophecy in battle. And they all promise allegiance to the Tua de Danan and promise to make the island itself against the Fomorians or at least seem as if it was moving mountains and trees. And this is kind of where Tolkien gets the idea, right, of moving the mountains and trees. So the battle begins and it's around Samhain time again. That's the 
what we know as All Hallows Eve or Day of the Dead. And it's a gruesome battle. And Lou had really strategized well, and they were coming out victorious. The Tuatha Dé Danann were coming out victorious when Balor uses his secret weapon, and that's his eye. So I mentioned he was named Balor of the Evil Eye. It's because his eye itself had this kind of Medusa feel where it was poison to the people. So he raises his eye at the end of the battle, feeling like he's going to win this with this secret weapon, and the eye would poison all that it would behold. And at the last minute, Lou sees this, and he takes a slingshot, and with one single shot, he nails Balor in the evil eye and therefore kills him. And the prophecy is fulfilled. So being the hero that he was, and obviously an amazing ruler, the people made Lou king. But back home, Talcha and her people were hungry. So Talcha decides to take it upon herself to clear all of the fields of Ireland so that her people could grow food. So she did just this. She cleared all of the fields of Ireland all by herself, slaved away until the task was complete and the people were able to grow food. But Talcha worked too hard, and she got sick. And as she was on her deathbed, knowing that she was not going to make it, Lou comes to her side, and she gives her last wish to Lou. The last wish of Talcha was to create a day of games and feasting. So that's what Lou did. He created the holiday of Lunasa, where funeral games would be held and the people would feast and enjoy the fruits of their labor. So for now, we will leave off here with our story, knowing that the Tua de Zanan had taken the battle and Lou was made king of the Tua de Zanan. Later, the Gales do come and invade, and they're the last people to take the island. And the Tua de Danan retreat into the hills of Tara and are said to have become what we now know as the Fae, or the fairies. Lou actually became a leprechaun in this shift in mythological lens. Because keep in mind, the Christian perspective also got imprinted upon this. And to get the people of Ireland to convert to Christianity, they weren't going to get rid of the gods that easy. <laughs> so, that's the story. So, the story that we told today to me, has a lot to offer in terms of my life and my healing. I am the type of person that takes a lot on. And I really relate to Talcha in the way that she clears the fields for all of Ireland, 
all of Ireland, all the people, they were hungry. And so she took it upon herself to go out and clear the fields by herself and work tirelessly until she made herself so sick that she died. <laughs> Literally died. It was this whole like concept of the martyr. And it's interesting to me because, you know, we talk about this time of the year that God is starting to die, right? Well, Talcha is the goddess. You know, and she's the earth. She is the goddess of the fields, the goddess of of grain, and she also sacrifices herself. The goddess also dies and sacrifices herself for the people. She gives the rest of her life force as well. And I find that really interesting because in my life, I I tend to uh, be the the martyr myself, where I take on way too much responsibility, and then I collapse from exhaustion. And it was interesting because it actually happened to me uh, when I took on the role of Tultra. In the ritual that you did? Yes. In the Lunasa ritual that we put on for the community, it was a very last minute <laughs> decision to put this ritual on as a performance. And it was interesting because I gathered my amazing friends and they were so excited about it. And also I have to be very, the word I would use is complicated. I'm not a simple person. I definitely think in terms of many detailed little pieces and I I have to fit them all together in a certain way. The way I do magic is it's very scientific and has to do with a lot of formulas and design. So I designed this ritual and got really into these parts and I tried to keep it simple but I just I'm not capable of that. So when my friends offered to help put on this this ritual it was like not only had i taken taken it upon myself to create this super detailed ritual for this magical effect but i had also taken it upon myself to organize everybody and i don't know if anybody has ever tried to organize witches especially in the last minute <laughs> but it's very difficult very, very difficult. It's like herding stoned cats, except they're not stoned. They're just magical creatures who are just off being magical. So tips for the future, if anybody wants to put on some kind of a ritual, make sure that you are prepped when you are working with a group of witches. So anyway, the day of comes. And I feel like a mad woman because I I was running around trying to get everybody their parts and trying to get all these little details in place. And it just was not happening the way that I wanted it to happen. And so for me, there was also a lesson in control that came up and how my directive was to control the flow of the ritual. So one of the lessons for me is that 
we're all showing up to create magic together and there needs to be structure, but it doesn't have to be so structured. It can also flow really nicely because when we did drop in and we actually did the ritual, it was perfect. Even if some steps were missed, it was in perfect unison. But something that was really interesting was that I was Talcha in the ritual performance. And being Talcha, I had basically taken it upon myself to run this whole thing by myself. And I realized that I did not delegate the roles out to my sister witches. And maybe if I did, it wouldn't have been so stressful. (laughs) And on top of that, I didn't get to die in the play. So in the ritual itself, I was supposed to not so much die. I won't say die because even though Talcha dies in the story, when we do magic, especially performance magic, when magic is involved, we don't enact death like that. We instead make it a little a little more palatable, I would say, <laughs> because we're ourselves, right? So you have to be careful. You have to be careful what you yeah. act out. And, yeah, Priscilla mentioned in our last episode – about her play that she put on for <laughs> her oh, yeah. her ritual and what happened there. So, you know, taking that in mind, instead of enacting Talcha's death, I enacted I wanted to enact her becoming the earth instead. Just going into the earth. So it comes time for this in the ritual and my friends who are so amazing and so lovely who, you know, we, it was last minute and I did not delegate out tasks to, were trying to be helpful and went ahead and cued our Lou to go ahead and announce the games early before it was time to announce the games, before I got to become the earth and die. <laughs> and so I never really got to put her down because Lou announced the uh, games and I didn't get to die. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. So something that I've been sitting with since that ritual is that Talcha wasn't done with me. She wasn't done with the lesson that she has of what it means to martyr yourself, what it means to sacrifice yourself when you could ask for support. So I'm sitting with this lesson right now of what it means to ask for support, what it means to ask those that desire to help to take on a larger role. And that's a big one for me. It's a really big one for me because I tend to be that very fiery, you know, leader aspect. Um, I was a big sister. I was, you know, the oldest child in my family. I I was very independent growing up, and I always orchestrated everything. And I'm very independent, and I live my life. But what I've realized is that community is so important. It's important to ask for support when you need it. We can't just harvest all of the crops on our own. We can't just clear all the fields of 
the entire land of Ireland, the entire island by ourselves and expect to come out of it in a better place. So I think to me, it's a lesson in the importance of allowing, allowing for those who love me to come together and support me in the ways that I need to be supported, to ask for what I need. Because, I mean, let's let's be frank, if Talcha had asked the people to help, to delegate out roles to help her in clearing the fields, she might not have died. So if you were going to create a ritual from the psycho-spiritual lessons that you've learned in this particular turning of the wheel, if you were going to encapsulate or symbolically represent something, some aspect of self or behavior or approach that you are ready to have the dying God carry away, how would you ritualize that? Can you identify that? Can you put it into terms um, that get really specific and get really focused and make it into a tidy packet that he can tuck under his arm or wear next to his heart as he's passing into the dream world? Mm-hmm. Well, Is it the relinquishing of control? or I think it is the allowing of support more than the relinquishing of control. It's both. It's a dance between both. And also, I kind of see this enactment of my own death in a way, just as Talcha didn't get to die in the ritual, I think that she does need to get to die in another ritual as we approach Samhain, the time of death. I think maybe I am supposed to sit with her until either Maven or Samhain, either one. And I think that something that I need to do for myself is to let that person who honestly carried this wounding that the wounding believing that I had to do everything by myself and that I, I'm not supported. Mm. I would like, I would like to let her go. I would like to put her in the air and I would like to be the person instead with a different belief, a belief that I am supported and I have the power of the God within me, the sun within me, and I also have the people of the earth around me, the support of the goddess and her children. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like, too, there might be some resting that takes place. And when we prepare to rest, we shut out exterior stimulation we let it go so by resting we let go of doing right so part of what can pass away might be that crazy to-do list or the the impulse to achieve everything on the to-do list not even the to-do list itself um because you know certainly there's never going to be 
there's no way to sacrifice one's creativity. That's ever flowing. But sometimes just, you know, as happens in the fertile realm of the earth and of nature, creativity, I mean, sometimes much is created and not everything is used. And then there is decadence. Then there is overabundance. Then there is affluence. And that starts to pull things out of balance. So a conscious resting and a conscious letting go of that which is not going to be done during the time of rest might be in order. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you look at the wheel, when Maven is here, it is time to start collecting your nuts, so to speak, like the squirrel starts to collect acorns and get ready for the winter for the times of the time when it's the nuts are not abundant when food is not abundant the resources are not abundant and you have your resources and you bring it inside of you you know the sun no longer is the warmth is no longer outside of you, but it now you bring it within you to carry the light through the winter. Mm-hmm. Just as the corn dollies carries the spirit of the grain through the winter of the earth, that grain has become imbued with the power of the sun. And so the grain that you save, your resources that you save to feed you through the winter, you are taking in the God all winter long with the power within it. So it's kind of like, even though you're resting, that first six weeks you collect of harvest, that that's the last harvest, by the way, um, Mavens of Samhain. Those are the last two harvest festivals. But that's the time of really squandering away your resources so that you can sustain yourself throughout the winter and you can rest. You can rest. And just Exactly. You have everything you need. So I think that that's mm-hmm. a big lesson there with, you know, the magic of the times. You know, I wanted to mention that harvest season, especially the first six weeks, again, mentioning the liminal spaces on the wheel, the cross quarters, the first six weeks of a quarter is, well, especially the equinox quarter, the first six weeks of the equinox quarters. So again, Maven to Samhain and Ostara to Beltane. Those are the times of movement, the times of manifestation, where manifestation is actually the strongest. So it's a really great time to do your magic, to bring in the things that you're going to need for the more stationary times of the year. <clears throat> so, yeah, we're preparing for Maven now. So right now it's in the list of, like, what do I need to sustain myself through the winter? Because I'm going to have to start collecting and really working on my manifestation for the winter once Maven comes. I remember a couple of years ago, I had a 
a session with a wonderful, he calls himself a consultant sorcerer. His name is Dr. Al Cummins. He lives in Brooklyn. And uh, he did a, a geomancy reading for me. And we talked about ancestors. And it was the first time that I had really begun the first time that I had conceptualized, you know, after meeting with him, the first time that I had conceptualized folding the ancestors into my magical practice in a way that was really deep and real. And there were some discrepancies in my relationships with my ancestors, especially my Jewish ancestors, ambivalence that came from relating to the ones that were recently passed or still alive. And I decided to do a piece of reconciliation, and he said that I do it on a new moon. And so I decided to make chicken soup, and I made it entirely from scratch. And my soup was terrible, but I offered it to my ancestors, and it wasn't actually until a few days later that I found out coincidentally that that was that I had done that on Rosh Hashanah. And, wow. uh, yeah, it was, it was pretty neat. And then, you know, Yom Kippur is generally about 10 days later. And as it so happened, I, um, we had been given a vehicle that, um, from someone who had passed. And, uh, we decided that it wasn't really operable and we decided to donate it. And when Working Wheels came to pick the car up, it ended up being on Yom Kippur. So, it was it was interesting. I think it's really neat that those two um, holidays, especially, you know, um, just from the standpoint of my ancestry, that they fall around this time because it is very much about taking stock. And one of the things that came so clear from that magical working that I did with my, you know, very not uh, witchcraft-oriented, you know, but very traditionally-oriented ancestors was that what what came from that stock-taking, what came from that paying attention to that relationship, from looking at that emotional ledger, was how incredibly important the ancestors are to me and how incredibly vitalizing their presence in my magical practices now and what an integral part they are. Um, so even though I sacrificed this full day uh, of, you know, kind of, somewhat messy, <laughs> you know, manhandling a, a whole chicken, um, you know, that experience, but the, what, what came out of it, what, what fruited from that sacrifice was something that's incredibly vital to me now. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely powerful when we, and we really drop into like the energy that's present with us and you know it, it all all is in the right time and all is in the right place and everything happens exactly as it's supposed to happen you know no i mean i i would encourage people to look into some of the myths of the dying gods of the middle east and near east and um see those as an allegory for the personal process of little ego deaths that we can enact and that, you know, make us more healthy, that prune away those parts of the self that are in excess. 
and mm-hmm. um, as we grow, it's just it's a it's a natural part of the process. And when we do that in ritual space, especially with other folk of like mind who support us and hold our best interests at heart, we do that in the presence of divine love energy in its many forms, and it changes us. It it um, that makes us into different people. It imbues our acts and our relationship with life with with magic, with um, with power, with energy, with curiosity, with creativity. So yeah, ritualizing those aspects um, is just a beautiful way, I think, of engaging with life and making those choices and those passages far more memorable and meaningful. Mm. Thank you, Priscilla. Yeah, thank you, Juniper. I am sitting here with the beautiful, amazing, talented Anya Hornowski, who has graced us with her presence and is going to share a song with us that she learned while she was living in Ireland. And this is uh, Irish Fire Song, is that right? That's right. Great. Will you explain a little bit about the song? Of course, yeah. Uh, so the name of the song is La Santina, which means light the fire. My friend Zilla Francis, who lives in the west of Ireland, she was trying to come up with a fire song for this annual event that we have that I've been a part of for several years called Earth Song where we do a giant, giant fire dance and they wanted an Irish fire song to sing around it and she was trying to come up with something and it all, this song just kind of came through all at once and when I heard a group of women singing it around this giant fire that was being lit, it just sounded so timeless and ancient and I'm pretty sure she downloaded it from the land there because so much of that druidic knowledge and magic uh, was not written down and they tried to stomp it out but the land remembers you know as you know you well know (laughs) (laughs) so I think yeah through her through the conduit of my friend Zilla I think this song returned and I've carried it over here now to (laughs) the states from the Irish island of sweetness that it originated from So the words mean, light the fire in our hearts, light the fire across the lands, may there be light, may there be light. So a blessing song for the fire and divine power to be ignited for one and all everywhere. Mm. Hmm. Thank you, Anya. La Santena in our Grihides La Santena Sanataluin La Santena in our Grihides La Santena Sanataluin Sol is a queen. 